Good morning, everyone. I want to ask you a question and just uh, think about this question and be honest with yourself. Have you ever had moments in your life where you've asked yourself, I wonder if my faith is real? You ever had those moments? Maybe you were in the midst of a season of struggle where you couldn't break free from the sin that so easily entangles us. And so you might have wondered, can those who fail still have genuine faith? I wonder if my faith is real. Well, I also wonder if Peter might have asked that same question after denying Jesus on three separate occasions. One of those when Jesus was staring him right in the eyes. I wonder if he wondered in his mind, having betrayed Jesus, could Jesus ever forgive him? Well, we know how that story goes, apparently so, because Jesus took the initiative to pursue Peter after his resurrection. And what we need to remember is that he didn't wait until Peter proved that he was sorry. Instead, Jesus proved that he was forgiving. He not only embraced his friend in forgiveness, he restored his place as an apostle. Peter was humbled. But may we never forget Jesus was so gentle and kind. Peter's faith was real, even though he failed. But what are those, about those times when you doubt? I mean, things might be going pretty well in your life, but maybe you still wonder, are the claims of the Bible really true? And more importantly, are they true for me? I mean, maybe it's true for someone else, but, but does it really apply to my life? And so if you ever have doubts, does that mean you really don't genuinely believe? Well, I wonder if Thomas might have thought about that when he questioned and doubted the resurrection of Jesus. Everyone said it was true. I mean, they were convinced, but Thomas couldn't be certain until Jesus proved it to him. And so he did. And not out of frustration or, or disappointment, he pursued Thomas with compassion and patience. And when he entered into the room that day, I believe he looked him in the eyes. And he said, peace be with you. In other words, it's okay to have doubts. Here, touch my wounds so that you can know that it's true. Jesus knew that Thomas had genuine faith even in the midst of his doubts. I think we all have moments in life where we face what I'll call a crisis of belief. I know that's certainly true in our passage this morning. Daniel's three friends are going to encounter an impossible situation. But just as we see with, with Peter and, and with Thomas, God hasn't forgotten them. In fact, he is with them even in that moment. And I hope you see very clearly this morning that what is true for them is equally true for you. And true faith doesn't mean that you have all the answers and that you no longer doubt. 
is believing that the Lord is work even when you can't see his hand at work. It's believing that even though he may not rescue you from a situation, you can have absolute certainty that he's right there in it with you. Because he never leaves you and he never forsakes you. He is always and eternally with you. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as we do, I want to ask you just to take a moment to pray for your own heart. That it would be open, sensitive to the work of His Spirit, to the power of His Word, to the praise and glory of His name. Ask Him to speak to you this morning. And if you would, pray for those who are around you, either you, people you know by name or just that you see this morning, just pray that in the same way that their hearts may be open, that they would hear God speak through his word to where they are in this moment in their life right now. Pray for those around you. Then finally, if you would, pray for me. Pray that even in my weakness, in my inadequacy, that the Lord would prove to be sufficient. That he, by the power of his spirit, would use my words to speak to the hearts of his people, to the praise and glory of his name. Lord, we offer these prayers to you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 3 and let's look at our passage together. I'd love for you to read along with me, beginning in verse 1. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. It says here, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. That at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
Now, we don't know the exact timing of this event. Remember, in the last two chapters, it kind of gave us a calendar date, right? And here, we don't know, and so we kind of have to make an educated guess. Uh, Most scholars believe it's been several years, and the reason is because uh, Nebuchadnezzar has already forgotten all the things that he learned back in chapter 2. Either that, or he's made this image in defiance of his dream, Because unlike that image that had a head of gold, this entire image is covered in gold. I believe promoting his never-ending reign or what he believes to be. He's completely forgotten about the God he says was Lord of Kings. Proudly standing in this plain before you enter the city of Uh, Babylon was a golden image that tells us it was nine feet wide and 90 feet tall. So to kind of give you some perspective, that baptismal space is nine feet wide, okay? So imagine that width, but then imagine it going 90 feet or about nine stories into the air. So you can imagine it would have made quite a presence when you walked into the city of Babylon. Now, there's really no indication that the image was of a particular God or a person because that is not in any way communicated through our passage this morning. So in my mind, I don't know if this is right, but what I have in mind is more of what the Washington Monument looks like, right? That's what I imagine, this image of of something that sits that tall and is that noticeable from such a long distance. The only difference is this Babylonian image was covered in pure gold. So you can imagine what a sight to behold that was as you entered into the capital city of Babylon. It would have undoubtedly been put there to make a statement. And quite frankly, I think that's what this is all about. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make a statement. He's already assembled all the political leaders, all the the people of influence throughout all the provinces in the area. He's choreographed a ceremony, right, where there is an orchestra that plays this music, at which time he is commanding everyone to bow in worship before this image. Now, even though that's being said, I think this really, underneath, has less to do with worshiping the image and more to do with honoring the king. See, he's trying to promote his, his power and dominion, but it's also revealing his insecurity. Because at the time, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. The Babylonian Empire has been massive as it's taken over most of the then known world. But here's the deal. It's a lot harder to keep your power than it is to gain it to begin with. And and everybody wants what he has. So this is his way of putting everyone else in their proper place. The golden image was a reminder of his power and dominion. And their response was a reminder of their rightful place of submission. Anyone's refusal would result in certain death. 
So look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. I want you to notice as we work our way through this passage, all the prideful political maneuvering that takes place. Where, where people are ruled by selfish appetites. They, they gain security through selfish gain. This is a man-centered world that has rejected the rule of God, and it should look very familiar. Where people do whatever they can to gain the upper hand, and that's what's happening here. The Chaldeans are trying to, to gain the upper hand, and they're motivated by bitterness and jealousy. The reason is they were overlooked when Daniel and his friends were promoted over them. So this is a manipulative way to regain their place of influence, even though it will cost the lives of other people. But that's just a small little thing when you want to be in power. They appeal to the king's undeniable arrogance. They point and they say, these men, these certain Jews have disregarded you. They don't worship your gods. They don't obey your commands. No one as great as you would let any rebels like them get away with this. And so as you can tell, they're playing on his pride and they're backing him into a corner. So there's only one thing that he can possibly do. Now, as a side note here, you're probably wondering, where's Daniel, right? Everything has been about Daniel up to this point, but we hear nothing about him in this chapter. So the question is, where's Daniel? Again, we don't know for sure, but back in chapter 2, we know that he was pointed to a place in the king's court, so in all likelihood, when all these people are gathered in the plain, Daniel is back in the palace. And, and so now we get to see how his friends perform when Daniel's not around. Look at what happens beginning in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that you are not going that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the Chaldeans have provoked Nebuchadnezzar to rage. Their, their plan is working just as they had intended. But what's interesting here is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't follow through with his original threat. Did you notice that? He, he said in the beginning that whoever does not follow his command, they will immediately be killed. But here in our situation that we see in our passage, he gives them another chance. He says, well, here's the deal. I'm going to do this again, right? And if you go ahead and go ahead and do what I say, then you get off scot-free. He's really given them a couple of choices. They can either deny the charges against them, saying, oh, that's not true. We bowed. You just didn't see us. Or they can say, okay, we understand. We'll do what you say. And I want you to keep in mind that, that all of this is happening before this crowd that has been assembled in this ceremony taking place. So I think you can probably feel the tension as all these events are unfolding. The king's pride is on the line, which only inflames his arrogance because what does he boast? He says, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hand. After all, that's what this ceremony is all about. It's all about the king proving the strength of his dominion and power over the people. So I would expect the hush would come over the crowd as everyone waited to see how these men would respond. And let's just say it's not quite what they expected. Because they respond and they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer. In other words, you're not the one to whom we give our allegiance. We serve a God whose power is far greater than you will ever know. A power that can undoubtedly deliver us from the midst of these flames. But even if he doesn't. We will not deny him even in our death. Because we will not put you or any other gods before him. You see, these men knew without a doubt that God had the power to rescue them. But they did not presume to know how God in his infinite wisdom would respond. He doesn't owe them an explanation. But he does deserve their full devotion. Their allegiance is not based on God always doing what they think he should do. Their devotion is a decision of trust. It reminds me of Job in chapter 13, verse 15, when he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. It's a faith that's not determined ultimately by what God does. It's a faith that is determined by who God is. They're telling King Nebuchadnezzar, you're not the one that controls our destiny. 
Only God does. And when we are in his hands, we have nothing to fear. Look at how it continues in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded a certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and other clothes and were cast into the midst of the the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because of the king's command was so urgent and the furnace had been so extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, the denial of the king's command was at that time a public humiliation. But once again, the people are all gathered and they're watching this unfold in front of them. Now, the furnace is likely nearby because it was used to melt down the gold from which that statue could be made. It was more like a very large kiln, okay? And I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. It has a a furnace on the ground level and then a large, tall chimney, chimney that goes into the sky. But there would have been a ramp from the ground level that would have gone up to the top of this chimney in the opening. So that they would then take, in the, in the beginning, they would take rocks and minerals up to the top of this chimney, dump them in so that the furnace would burn them and melt down the elements that they would then use to build that statue. In his fury, Nebuchadnezzar orders that this furnace be heated up seven times more than it usually was. And then he calls forth his most valiant soldiers, and he tells them to tie up these three men in a way they could never possibly break free. Their clothes were left on to make them more combustible in the fire. All the while, that fire that he ordered to be heated up is now raging out of control. We know that's true because when the soldiers took the men to the top to drop them in, that fire leapt out of the chimney and consumed them on the spot. In the king's fury, it had turned into his folly. He could not control the fire. And the fire consumed his men. Look at verse 23. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the midst of the furnace, a blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. See, when Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he couldn't believe his eyes. And so he called others to look in there with him to make sure his eyes weren't playing tricks on him because he knew that he cast three men into that fire, but when he peered inside the furnace, there were four of them walking around. 
And not only that, they were completely unbound from those knots that could never be untied. And they were completely unharmed by the fire that surrounded them. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and says, the fourth one has an appearance like a son of the gods. Now, if he has an appearance like a son, it tells me that he has a human form. But as a god, he was separate. He was distinct from the other three men in the furnace. So this is someone, get this, who is fully God and yet fully man. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus to me. So very possibly, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus standing in the midst of the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But even if you want to argue that's not who it is, that's okay. Because it still points to what our Savior does. Because like that furnace, our sin is an all-consuming fire in our life. And sin's penalty is a judgment of inescapable destruction. The Bible says that the, the wages of sin is death. There's not a person in this room has the power to overcome that penalty. Our lives are tied up, entangled, if you will, with, with the sin that surrounds us, that is within us. It's impossible for us to break free. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, not even one, that, that we have all willfully chosen to go our own way. But because of the great love with which he loved us, Jesus took the judgment for our sin that we deserved. The only way he could rescue us from the fire was to enter into it on our behalf. And when we trust in his power to redeem, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are set free, loosed from the sin that so easily entangles us because we fix our eyes on Jesus who is with us, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That's why we are free. Jesus promised, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. See, that truth was evident for everyone there that day, including the king. Look at what he says beginning in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responds and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks against anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to rubble, 
inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Instead of directing everyone's attention to give worship to the golden image, they now turn their worship to the one true God. He stands in admiration of the unwavering conviction of these three men, even knowing they were defying the king's order and would surely meet their own death. He then makes a decree that anyone who speaks against this God would be killed, as he says, torn limb from limb. He turns to the crowd and he says this, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Now, how ironic, isn't it? In in comparison to what he said earlier in verse 15 when he boasts, what God can deliver you out of my hands? Well, now he knows. This God can. So I want us to center our attention on what I think is one of the main takeaways from our passage this morning. It's very simple. I would state it this way. We are preserved by the assurance of God's presence. Okay, would you say that with me again? We are preserved by the assurance of God's presence. And let that sink in just a little bit. You may remember from our study in Romans recently the question that Paul asks in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, when he says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then you remember he goes on a few verses later in verse 28 and he answers that question. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are preserved by the assurance of God's presence. If he's for us, then nothing can be against us. Because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we trust in his promise, we can be certain of his presence. It kind of reminds me of uh, something that Graham learned recently, my son, who then shared with me, and I thought it was really, really helpful. He was listening to a speaker who was addressing the issue of anxiety, which I'm pretty familiar with. This speaker went on to kind of define anxiety in this way. He said, anxiety is imagining our future without Jesus in it. Think about that. Anxiety is imagining our future without Jesus in it. And as soon as he said that, I thought, man, that's good. And so true. I mean, when I think about the anxious moments in my life, times when I'm looking into the future of all the what-if possibilities, right? And and I'm thinking about all the scenarios where things could go wrong. The fact of the matter is, I never imagined Jesus in the midst of it. Never. But what if we did? What if we did? Wouldn't it? make a difference knowing that no matter what we face, that Jesus is in the midst of it with us. 
Even though he may not rescue us from the fire, we can be certain that he is present in the midst of our struggle with us. I don't know about you, but that makes a world of difference to me. That reshapes how I think about things. My anxiety is always, always focused on my ability to navigate a situation on my own. My fear is having to face my struggle alone. But our focus needs to be on God's sufficiency, not on our inadequacy. Finding confidence in the hope that he will carry us through. Because here's the reality, people, and we all know this to be true. Every single one of us will experience the furnace of suffering in our life. Impossible situations that we can think in our minds, there is no way that I can get through this, whatever this is in that moment. We may strive for comfort and peace, but we will undoubtedly encounter trouble. So, will we be overcome by our inadequacy, or will we rely on his sufficiency? Believing that he is always present, even in the midst of our deepest pain. See, our situation is only hopeless if he's not in it. But if we believe that he is near, we have absolutely nothing to fear. His presence makes all the difference in the world. What a powerful truth, right? Reminds me of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, verse 1. He says, but now, thus says the Lord, O creator, O Jacob. And let me encourage you to do something. You might just write that passage down, okay? Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. And I want you to make it personal. So I'm going to do that for you now to show you what I mean. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Todd. He who I have formed, O Todd, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, Todd. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you, Todd. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, Todd. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. We are preserved by the assurance of His presence. And I hope and pray with all my heart that no matter where you are this morning, that that is of deep, deep comfort to you. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for that incredible assurance of your presence in our lives when we've put our trust to you because we belong to you. And you say that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us and there is never a situation where you are not near. And when you are near, we have nothing to fear. Because when you are with us, nothing can be against us. Nothing can separate us from your love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present. What we're going through right now, things future, things that are yet to come. 
height nor depth or any created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus who entered the fire in order to take the wrath of our sin so that we could be untangled and set free. May we live joyfully as I can only imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have as they walked out of that furnace and said to Nebuchadnezzar, we told you so. Our God can. May we live with that same conviction. Our God can. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. If you would, let's stand together. So whether you're in a place that's really hard right now or not, there's plenty going on in our world around us to be fearful about, right? But here's my challenge for you. Will you focus on the flames around you or the God that is with you? If you'll put your attention on he who is able, the one who is within us, far greater than anything around us, I think it'll change our fears and turn them into the assurance of our faith in what only our God can do. There's security in that. So don't focus on the flames around you. Look at the God who is with you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning to be in your presence, giving glory and praise to your name, our great God and King. Father, we trust that what you demonstrated in the lives of Daniel's friends, you will demonstrate over and over in our lives as well as we put our trust in you, not looking at the flames, the the fear that surrounds us, but the God who is with us, the Savior, Jesus, who has given his life in order to set us free. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Have a great day.